text for the sermon this afternoon comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11, where we will be considering the first 18 verses. Um, Acts 11 uh, begins with um, Peter back in Jerusalem and some controversy revolving around what happened uh, in Acts chapter 10 with Peter uh, uh, being in a Gentile's house and eating, eating and partaking of food with Gentiles. And so we pick up um, that from in Acts chapter 11, verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, and perfect word. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet led down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean as any time entered my mouth. The voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And they told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter will tell you the words by which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. As we look at the history of the church, we see that there were those who initially objected to the gospel going out to the Gentiles. Read once again in our text that when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And we see from this history the sad reality that people are often far more interested in, in criticizing and causing, finding cause for accusation than in rejoicing in the work of God. These Jews had evidently heard about uh, aspects of Peter's work in Caesarea prior to him having an opportunity to tell the church in Jerusalem. But what was it that they heard? 
They evidently hadn't really heard about Peter's vision. They hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit coming down upon the Gentiles in the same way it had come down upon them at Pentecost. Instead, they had heard the, the scandalous news that Peter had gone to the house of an uncircumcised Gentile and ate with him, and not just with him, but multiple Gentiles. They had heard the scandalous news. They had heard the bad news and assumed without context what the truth actually was. And isn't it true today that there are those far more interested in hearing matters of gossip and scandal than rejoicing in the work of God? It is bad news that is always newsworthy, and we are so often quicker to condemn than to rejoice and praise God. But we see Peter have a great deal of patience with these Jews. He explained everything that happened to them in order from the beginning so that they might rightly understand the entire history. He could have pleaded his, Peter could have pleaded his right as an apostle and his authority, uh, being given the authority of Jesus Christ to act in the way he did, but he did not do that. Instead, he made himself accountable to the inspection and questioning of others. He, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, submitted himself to the questions and concerns of the members of the body of Christ here. And he wisely and humbly responded to these criticisms. And... Jews, upon hearing the whole whole account in order from the beginning, respond with great joy to Peter's account of the occurred conversion of the Gentiles. We read that their fears and anger and and possibly even disgust at Peter Peter dissipated into quietness and joy. In verse eighteen of our text we 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 read When they heard these things they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. This morning we spent considerable time meditating upon who Christ is. I called you to consider uh, aspects of Jesus Christ's ministry. And and as we looked at Isaiah 11, we, we call to mind three things about Christ. We call to mind his lowliness, his power, and his influence. And I also encourage you to remember Christ in faith. In remembering Christ in faith, we saw that that faith is, is this assenting to the truth of the gospel and also this receiving and resting upon Christ and his righteousness as the propitiation for our sins. This faith is also referred to as justifying faith. And in the Westminster Larger Catechism, justifying faith is called a saving grace. There's another saving grace that the Catechism speaks of. It speaks of the saving grace of repentance unto life. But what is repentance to life? We have that phrase in in our passage here in in Acts 11, verse 18. But what is it? What does it mean to repent to life? Well, repentance in Scripture refers to a complete change of the person. 
Often you hear the definition that repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. This is a a partial definition of repentance. Repentance is a change of mind, but it's also a change of heart and a change of action. It strikes that change in the three faculties of the soul, the cognition, which is our thoughts, the affections, our our love or desires, and our volition, our, our will to act. We could also call this the heart and mind and will, but to put it simply, it is a change in our whole person. To simply define repentance as a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior means that repentance does not really have anything to do with what we love. God's Word calls us to love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Prior to being saved, we did not love God, but we hated God. Just have a change of mind about God that leads to a change of action does not get at the transformation that must happen with our hearts and affections. One can go from being a God-hating atheist to a God-hating theist who tries to live uh, morally in obeying the second table of the law because he believes that's the best way to run society. He hasn't truly repented He's changed his mind about something, and he's changed his action about something, but he hasn't truly repented because he has not changed his affections. He still ultimately hates God. Joel 2, verse 12 through 13 says this regarding repentance. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. With repentance, we are accepting facts about ourselves and about God as true. We are striving to love what God loves and hate what God hates, and thus walk in obedience to God's word. Repentance is a turning from one thing to another thing. And this is something I appreciate greatly with how God described repentance in the Old Testament. It is that word turn. And and repentance, our our whole person, is turning from from one thing to God. From from sinful actions and behavior and thinking and desires to right thinking, right knowledge, right desires, right actions. And yet, our text in talking about repentance also is clear that in saying that repentance is something that God grants, something God works in his people. The words of our text say, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Repentance is a gift of God. This is what we mean when we speak of repentance being a saving grace or an evangelical grace. It is a grace, an unmerited favor connected with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's something God grants to his elect people. Peter says in Acts 5.31 that him, speaking of Christ, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God gives repentance. God, by the supernatural work of his Spirit, 
with the means of the reading and preaching of the word works repentance in our hearts. Yet even though repentance is the work of God, this does not mean we we simply sit on our hands waiting for this mystical experience for our God to change us. No, God works through means. Repentance is accomplished through means. We ought to be laboring towards repentance in our lives. We ought to be turning from our sin to God, turning from our sinful understanding, our preoccupation with ourselves, our own morality, our our self-righteousness to God. Turning from all those things and and turning to God and and studying who God is through His Word and and sitting under the preaching of the Word and praying to God and, and singing God's Word. All these aspects are important for us to rightly turn. Paul in Acts 20, in verse 21, says that he preached repentance toward God. Repentance is turning from sin to God. And this idea of turning is why in our text uh, uh, it's referred to as repentance to life. Repentance, true repentance, is turning from death to life. These are the words of our text. Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Repentance is always, as I've said already, it's always directional. When we repent of our sins, we are turning from the death that sin brings to life in God. We are turning not, uh, uh, we are turning to not only spiritual life but also everlasting life with Jesus Christ. And in our repentance, we are also turning to the God of life. We are turning to a God who is merciful and gracious. And one who delights in those who humble themselves, are ready to acknowledge their sins. So, in our repentance, we are, we are turning from death to life. Yet, in defining repentance, we must also be sure that we recognize that repentance is distinct from forgiveness. There are some who essentially believe that repentance and forgiveness are the same thing. If they are to ask God for forgiveness of their sins, they are essentially repenting as well. And maybe even more common is, is for someone to think that them praying uh, that God would help them repent is for them to repent. That's not how Scripture speaks of repentance. Scripture speaks of repentance as, as a bearing of a particular fruit. And so it's not enough for us to say, well, I'm, I'm repenting. But no, we must bear fruit as well. True repentance is evidence. It's something that's visible, something that's tangible. In Luke 3, 8, John the Baptist preached, saying, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our, as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from those stones. So that's that's the definition of repentance. It's a, it's a turning of our whole person to bear fruit. A turning of our whole person to God from sin and, and death and misery to, to life and happiness and and joy in service of God, bearing evident fruits. Now, with that definition of repentance, we must see that repentance is something that every person must do if they are to be saved. 
Repentance is not just something for the most wicked people to do. It isn't something for just the most holy people to do. It's not something just for, for Jews. It's not something just for Gentiles. It's something that God commands all people everywhere to do. And in Luke twenty four forty seven, we read, Christ say to his disciples, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance is to be preached in Jesus' name to all nations. Something God calls everyone to do. Once again, the words of our text remind us of this. The Jews are joyful because God has not just granted Israel repentance, but he has granted to the Gentiles repentance. And you'll remember that when the people heard Peter preach the gospel at Pentecost, they were cut to the heart and asked the disciples, saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And to this, Peter replied, saying to all of them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Peter preached repentance. God calls all people everywhere. Indeed, he commands. This isn't just a call. It's, it's a direct command to repent. We're all in need of repentance because of our sinful human nature, which we have inherited from our first father, Adam. Every single one of us is a sinner. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. First John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We have a sinful nature. We have a fallen nature. We have original corruption from Adam. As Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. But we also have our actual sins, those sins that we commit, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Whether there are sins we know about or sins we don't know about. Whether they are sins of commission or sins of omission, we break God's word in thought, word, and deed every single day. But God in his grace has granted repentance to the Gentiles. While not everyone is elect and given that grace of repentance, the gospel is preached without distinction. There are sadly those who would seek to limit the proclamation of the gospel. The heresy of hyper-Calvinism would only have the gospel preached to, to those who are the elect. But God has commanded all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. These are the floodgates of the gospel being thrown open. As we saw this morning, Jesus is, is the banner of the Gentiles. Jesus said to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up a servant in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so regardless of who you are, what you have done, God's word comes to you this morning, sorry, this afternoon, commanding you to repent of your sin. Repentance has been granted to the Gentiles. 
What use is to be made of repentance? Hopefully seeing the need for each one of us to repent. And specifically, what repentance is to look like. But now, what use are we to make of this evangelical grace, this saving grace? First, I urge you to recognize that the act of repentance is fundamental to the Christian life. Repentance is not something simply that we as Christians do when we are first converted. Our lives are to be lives of repentance. John Calvin considered the Christian life as one of continual conversion, of of a continual turning away from sin and, and turning towards God. Martin Luther in his 95 Theses declared, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Jesus Christ's own ministry on this earth from the very outset was one of calling men and women to repentance. In Matthew 4, 17, we read, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we see there that repentance is fundamental to the Christian life. Repentance is central to living the life of faith, of constantly putting off the deeds of the flesh and putting on righteousness and conformity to Christ. Are you living this life of repentance? Are you intentionally seeking to discover sin in your life and seeking to put sin out of your life that you might put on righteousness? Are you living a life of repentance? Second, I want to ask, is your repentance true repentance? Is it repentance unto life? If we have a repentance unto life, then surely there must also be a repentance unto death. There are sad numbers of men and women who claim they are repenting, but they are repenting to death. Judas Iscariot, after he had betrayed Christ, had such guilt and remorse over his sin that he went out and hanged himself. He sorrowed. He he felt grief and remorse. Some might have said, oh, this man is repenting for what he did. But Judas did not repent unto life. He did not seek Christ in faith. His tears meant nothing. His remorse meant nothing. What a contrast Peter is with Judas. Peter after he had betrayed Christ, sorrowed. We read in Luke twenty-two sixty-two that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Yet his tears were unto life. His repentance was unto life, as we see in John 21, where Christ restored Peter, and Peter declared his love for Christ. Is your repentance true Repentance. As you struggle with sin, 
in this life? What are you doing with that sin? Are you bearing fruits of repentance? Are you making specific and particular changes with how you are doing things? When you confess your sins, are you going further and actually bearing fruits of repentance? At the end of the day, all your tears over your sin will not save you. Only godly sorrow producing repentance will lead to salvation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, for godly sorrow producing, produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Is your repentance true repentance to life or is it to death? Third, do not take repentance for granted. Seeing that repentance is a gift that God gives. And so repentance is not something to take lightly. While God indeed is a God of grace, there is an urgency to our repentance. It can be easy for us in this life to be superficial about the work of repentance and grow more and more hardened in our sin. We say we repent, but we do not mean it. We continue to love our sin and cling close to our sin. We come again and again confessing our sin to God, bearing no fruit, continuing our sin, but continuing to, to go to God in repentance, asking forgiveness, confessing. We feel remorse and guilt over our sins, yet our sorrow is so often for the consequences of that sin. Not because we hate our sin and, and love God's. Hebrews 6, verse 4 through 6, warns us against the abuse of, of the saving grace of repentance. We read in Hebrews 6, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall again to renew them again to repentance, since they recrucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. In that passage, Paul is warning the Hebrews who had learned the beginning doctrines of Christ. They had been catechized in the teachings of Jesus Christ. He's warning them, don't go back to the types and shadows of the Old Testament. You've repented of those things. Don't go back because if you go back, it's impossible to renew again. A repentance. Or in doing so, they would be crucifying Christ afresh. Now, this does not mean that there is not hope for those who have not sincerely repented in the past, but uh, simply made a show of repentance. However, it does mean that it can be a great danger. There is a great danger in a hardened heart. It is always said, well, I, I've repented, but has not borne fruit of repentance. Consider Pharaoh. Pharaoh, after almost every plague that came upon Egypt, had a, maybe what you might call it, an initial softening of his heart. He was, he was willing to, okay, I'll, I'll maybe let your people go, but, but well, let's have this condition here. He had maybe an initial willingness to obey the commands of God. You might call it an uh, initial sign of repentance. But then he would go harden his heart and harden his heart and, and harden his heart until it was absolutely impervious the word of God, and it resulted in his own death and the destruction of the nation that God had entrusted to his care. You need to be on guard against false repentances. 
We need to be sincere in our devotion to God. Let us not take the grace of repentance for granted. Fourth, let us also at the same time be sure that we recognize that our repentance in this life will never be perfect. In our repentance, we must cling to Christ's righteousness, not our own righteousness, nor the quality of our repentance. Praise be that we are not saved from our sins based upon the, the sincerity of our repentance. We are saved by the blood of Christ, and a true repentance will once again forsake sin and, and cling closely to God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Repentance and faith go together. They're, they are the two saving graces. In our repentance, we must cling close to the Lord. Let us therefore be bold to come to such a God in our repentance. And let us hear the words of Micah 7, verse 18 through 19. Where Micah says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cause all our sins, sorry, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Let us turn to such a God when we repent, recognizing that our repentance in this life will never be perfect. And we will indeed need to repent even of our repentances. And fifth, fifth use to make of this is to repent of our sin. Do not despise this, this gift and grace of God. Unless you repent, you will perish, for God will judge you in your sins. You will be held to account for your sins. If you do not repent, the only thing that awaits you is judgment. Do not be deceived about the lies of universal salvation. God is a God of justice and judgment. He is a God of vengeance. And he will bring judgment upon you if you remain in your sin. Hear with faith the words, the sobering words of Revelation 21 verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part. The lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. A very sobering warning. A God will indeed deal with sinners justly. God has granted repentance to life to the Gentiles. And so we must repent if we are to be saved. Finally, last use I want to draw your attention to this afternoon. Repentance is often, and rightly so, a sobering reality. It produces sorrow. And it is also a cause for great joy. And that's once again what I want to point you to this afternoon. Repentance of life caused the Jews to rejoice. 
Our text one last time reads, When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Repentance to life is, is an exciting thing. The fact that God in his grace and mercy has granted us this saving grace that we can be redeemed from our sins. That we are not destined to be judged for our sins if our hope is in God. We have knowledge that indeed we'll have everlasting life if we hope in Christ, if we repent and believe What lost souls we would be without this saving grace of repentance. If God had not granted this grace, we would be dead in our sins, stuck in an endless cycle, even a spiral of depravity. But God grants the saving graces of both justifying faith and repentance to life. Let us therefore be joyous that he indeed has granted this gift to us. And let us turn to the God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let us turn from our sins and delight in the God who has redeemed us. Let us taste and see that our God is a good God. He is patient with us in our sins. And he delights to redeem those who humble themselves and come before him, even as he did with the city of Nineveh. He delighted to save those Ninevites who repented and came to him. And we can be sure and confident this afternoon that God delights when we repent and turn to him in faith knowing that he forgives and washes away all of our sin. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we have considered the sobering doctrine of repentance here this afternoon. Lord, we come confessing that our repentance is often not what it should be. We say we repent, but we often don't bear fruit of repentance. Lord, we pray that you would spur us on to bear such fruit. That we would walk in holiness. That, Lord, we would not despise this good gift that you have given, but would make right use of it. Father, we thank you that in your grace you have granted repentance to life. We can save from death and destruction. That we can turn to you, the God of life, the God of love. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, grant by your Spirit that we would ever make use of your grace. Lord, that we would ever turn from our sins and turn to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in our psalm books to Psalm 34, the C selection.